Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn, the story of animation. One of the things that's come up a lot on the podcast is the childhood memories that I have of watching cartoons and that our guests have of watching cartoons and how those memories are really treasured. In fact, that's a lot of the reason many of the people we're featuring got into animation in the first place. But cartoons and animation weren't always the realm of children. A lot of early animation was made with grown-ups in mind. A lot of early animators in the U.S. came from the print cartoon industry and vaudeville. They had been making funny entertainment that didn't necessarily exclude kids, but it wasn't really aimed at them either. And that carried right over into their animated work. And almost as quickly as the idea of an animated short film was born, film studios started to purchase them to run in front of feature films as pre-show entertainment. From 1928 up, if you went to a movie theater and didn't see a cartoon, people were outraged. That's animation historian Jerry Beck. I mean, I'm outraged now if I don't see the trailers. If I go into a movie now and the movie just starts, I like, I'd like to see those coming attractions. But that's the way people felt about cartoons. So every studio, suddenly, they weren't before, Paramount, MGM, Fox, everybody affiliated with a cartoon maker or created their own studio. And so Steamboat Willie started that. So the studios and all of the studios had animation units because all movies were shown with cartoons. All movies were shown with cartoons. It was the universal industry policy. Eddie Von Mueller, also an animation historian and a professor at Emory University, talked about those cartoons attached to movies as well. The only kinds of movies that could be shown without a cartoon were big roadshow movies like three hours long or whatever. So they had a guaranteed market for short cartoons, but they also had a vested interest in making those cartoons both competitively and inexpensively. And that meant each of these studio units really had to identify, like, what's their thing going to be? They had to kind of come up with their, their brand. Even in those early days, there was a split beginning. Walt Disney was already starting to focus on content made for a wider audience that did include kids. The idea that the animated cartoon was specifically for children and mothers, parents of young children, that idea, that is the consequence of Walt Disney and how Walt Disney's brand and company and ideology evolved. The important thing to remember about all of these great cartoons of the 30s and 40s and 50s and into the 60s is that 
theatrical cartoons were designed for a broad audience that specifically includes adults. Bugs Bunny, Looney Tunes, and other Warner Brothers cartoons were grounded in the current events of the day, and that kept Warner Brothers animation in the cultural conversation for grown-ups. So, like, for you and me to be on a train in 1942 talking about the latest Bugs Bunny short that we saw when we went to the movies and we're like a couple of adults, that would be normal. In the same way that it would be completely normal in 1958 for you and me to be having a serious conversation on our lunch hour about what was happening in Dick Tracy that week or Little Abner that week, because that wasn't kid stuff. Eddie went on to talk about why the animation of the 1930s and 40s was something that could entertain viewers all along the age spectrum. Today, we can yak it up all we want over what's happening on Game of Thrones, which is way tamer, right? Because the social world views these products and the people who make them differently. So part of why Bugs Bunny is so sophisticated and so effortlessly contemporary is because in 1938, he was, right? He was one of the things that hip, together with it, people knew about. And that's going to really influence the way the industry works. The best animation is always produced by people who are unashamed. And because they are unashamed, they don't pander. They don't assume that kids are idiots or that no adults are watching. In the late 1930s, something happened that changed animation forever. Televisions were made available for the home market for the first time. She's ready. She's ready. I got it. I got it. Call the doctor, Fred. The doctor. No, 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 Bonnie. You grab the suitcase. I'll call it. Hello, hello, Dr. Rockpile. This is Fred Hospital. I'm taking my wife to the Flintstone. Come on, Bonnie. As movie studios struggled financially and cut animation departments thanks to the Depression, that left a lot of talent looking for work. And while this new medium wasn't exactly loaded with money, it was something. I'm going to let animation historian Jerry Beck explain it. Hanna-Barbera brought to television professionalism, is the word I like to use. Hanna-Barbera had spent about 16 or 17 years at MGM. MGM was a lavish a studio had very big budgets for their shorts. And of course, Hannah and Barbera had created Tom and Jerry and had been doing these fully, fully animated, beautiful cartoons, maybe eight of them per year. No dialogue, all everything done with actions and movements and pantomime. And suddenly, after winning eight Oscars, they were kind of shown the door. They didn't own uh, Tom and Jerry. MGM closed its studio. But Hannah Barbera had everybody's phone number in their Rolodex. And they had the best artists, and they knew how to make cartoons. They just needed a place to sell them to. And there was nothing except television, and television's budgets were very, very tiny. And they figured out a way by volume in order to make it pay. They could get X amount, but they had to do like five times the work. But they had the greatest artists, greatest voices, all these people who were let go from MGM— and uh, like I say, they brought this sense of professionalism. The cartoons before that were pretty, pretty cheap and looked it. Uh, Hanna-Barbera's cartoons were slick. And that's why I think they were popular and successful. They didn't aim down at children initially. All right, pull over. 
I'm taking my wife to the hospital. Another wife? What are you, an Arabian prince? How many wives do you have? No, 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 officer. You don't understand. You see... Wow. The first one was bad enough. This one's a dog. Now, just a minute. You can't talk that way about my wife. Sorry, dear. You'll have to excuse it. Holy smokes, Dino! In recent news... The Simpsons were touted as having surpassed Gunsmoke to take the crown of the longest-running scripted TV show. And I remember when The Simpsons came out, it seemed so groundbreaking. I had watched The Simpsons shorts on The Tracy Ullman Show, and I loved them, but a fully animated weekly sitcom? Amazing. But that was kind of my ignorance talking. I had no idea at the time that other series that I had routinely watched as a kid had actually started their lives as primetime sitcoms way before The Simpsons hit the scene. Here's Eddie Von Mueller's take. This is a transition that takes place within a within a defined historical period. It's, it's between 1962 and 1965. In 1960, The Flintstones comes on. And The Flintstones is on primetime. It is literally The Simpsons or The PJs. It is a sitcom format animated television show aimed at a broad national audience and it does very well and it's followed up by the Jetsons and that's a moment the last moment really in which American animation was made by made in the way and made for the same audiences and the same institutions that have been making animation since the 1920s. Hannah and Barbera were old-school animation guys. They'd come up in the studio units, MGM and elsewhere. And they thought of animation as something that is fresh and topical and timely and referencing. It's They're both highly derivative, you know. It's obviously, it's a version of The Honeymooners meets I Love Lucy, you know, and it's it's all those things. Jerry Beck also talked about how important the Flintstones were in launching a new era in animated television series. The first primetime animated series, again, nobody remembers that the first few seasons of that were aimed at adults. If you look at the first two seasons, it's very much a a grown-up show. It's not quite Family Guy or The Simpsons, but it's not really aimed at children. It was aimed to be a companion to the other shows that were on primetime then and just like another sitcom from that era. So that was a revolutionary step because it all of these things that I'm mentioning spawned action by others. And Flintstones, of course, spawned a mini primetime animation boom in the early 60s, which is pretty forgotten. But that boom included Top Cat. Hello? Yes? Officer Dibble? Well, this is his answering service. May I take a message? All right, Top Cat. Johnny Quest. Alvin and the Chipmunks, and many other shows from other studios. So what happened? If animation was so ingrained in the American identity that it could be a primetime sitcom in the early 60s with respectable ratings, why didn't we continue to have animated shows in those slots? As Eddie explains, the big problems were time and money. Here's the problem. Animation's time-consuming. Animation is costly. Animation requires a kind of specialized labor. And we're at a period of time of dramatic transformation in American entertainment. And what's happening is over at companies like UPA, 
which is the company that created Mr. Magoo and a lot of other really great cartoons, they discovered this new marketplace for animation in the form of television commercials. And there's a long history of animation for advertising and a long history of animation of even animation as kind of a commercial art. But television, increasingly television is going to be where you can make your money because animation is time-consuming, because it's costly, because it's labor-intensive. We have to figure out how to make it pay for itself. Like, who can literally afford to make animation? Well, one of the answers to that question is Japan. Okay, I want to manage expectations for a moment here in case any anime fans are listening. We're not really covering anime in depth on this season of Drawn. This season's primary focus is animation in the U.S., and to do the amazing Japanese tradition of animation justice, it would take more than one episode wedged into the season. But anime is a really important part of the animation story. It influences a lot of today's animators and showrunners. So I did want to include a brief mention of its roots by Eddie Von Mueller here, because some of that workforce was contributing to animation that was distributed primarily in North America. And we continue to use overseas talent today. Over in Japan, what we've got is we've got a large industrial workforce. We have a highly skilled collection of print cartoon artists who've been doing manga and print cartoon artists doing newspaper strips in America is where we got the labor pool for early American animation. So we've got a whole bunch of guys who know how to draw well, they know how to draw fast, they work at a cheap rate, and we are going to see the emergence in 1964 of the first of what will be a series of cheaply made, quickly made, minimally animated cartoons, mostly based on children's manga. And of course, manga address a huge audience, but these were kid manga. And they were properties that were already licensed for toy manufacture. And the success of the import of Astro Boy in 1964 and 1965 is going to start creating this pipeline. Basically, the people who could create cartoons cheap and quick were the Japanese. The audience that these cartoons were going to be created for were going to reflect the commodities that were literally offsetting. I mean, Disney did not make money on theatrical uh, exhibition. Some of the great Disney films did not make a profit until they'd been re-released seven, eight times. Disney was already creating a strong association between children and animation through their theatrical, their destinations, uh, the, the parks, the TV show, the Mickey Mouse Club. So the groundwork for making cartoons kid stuff had already been well laid. It was simply an issue of like, this is too expensive. But eventually, Saturday morning cartoons happened. Okay, so Saturday morning, you know, was always like this dumping ground for the networks, I like to say. Um, there wasn't a lot of strategy. It was a place where, you know, it was Saturday, the kids were at home, and the networks always had some type of children's entertainment for, you know, for kids to watch on Saturday. 
This continued through the 50s and the early 60s. And then in the fall of 1966, it all changed. That's Mark McRae. Mark is a senior manager of programming operations for Adult Swim, and he is passionate about cartoons. He is also the author of a book called The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. There was a young programming executive named Fred Silverman who was working at CBS, and CBS was the number one network. So they didn't allow him to touch primetime or daytime where all the game shows and the soap operas were. So the only thing left for him to really use his programming strategy would be Saturday morning. And at the time, CBS's Saturday morning was in last place. And the first thing he did was order all the black and white cartoons off the air. He says, color is coming and we want our Saturday morning schedule to have color. But probably the most important show that he ordered was a show called The New Adventures of Superman from DC Comics. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! That show hit the air. It single-handedly delivered CBS from number three to number one, like overnight, and created like a whole halo effect for the network. So when Superman premiered, it, it brought in huge ratings, it brought in the advertisers, it brought in the audience, and people started thinking that we can actually make a business out of Saturday morning cartoons. And I really consider that the big bang of the 1966-67 season. And the rest of the networks took note. After Superman made such a big splash on Saturday morning, of course, the following year, there was nothing but superhero shows on the air. ABC, which was number one before CBS came in and brought in this game-changing Superman series, they were really smart. They went and brought in all the Marvel superheroes, uh, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four, which... I just thought that was genius. You know, if your rival is using DC Comics to beat you, the smartest thing would be to get DC's rival on the air, you know, with Marvel superheroes. So I thought that was really awesome. And NBC, which (laughs) couldn't get DC or Marvel, depended on Hanna-Barbera to create their own superhero shows like uh, Birdman and the Galaxy Trio and Young Samson, which were also pretty successful. But all those superhero shows actually started to trouble parents. At a time when the Vietnam War was on everyone's minds and virtually every newscast, people became more sensitive to the content that their children were consuming. The world, they felt, was dark enough without cartoons adding to that. So, during the fall of 1968, with parents' groups and religious groups pressuring the networks to change their programming... The show that was brought in in 1968 was The Archies. We want to dance and we want to sing. Have some fun and go adventuring. And a really strange thing happened. The Archies started to outpace all the superhero shows. So with the Archies coming in, it created a solution for the networks and satisfied the parents' groups as well as the religious groups that we don't need superheroes anymore. We can just have teenage shows. The following year, Scooby-Doo made its debut. Josie and the Pussycats 
also showed up. And so it went from superheroes battling to musical groups and African-Americans and teenagers. They supplanted the superheroes. But then things shifted again and superheroes came back into vogue. There was a Brady Kids cartoon that debuted like around 1972, and there were guest appearances of Superman, the Lone Ranger, and Wonder Woman. And it was actually Wonder Woman's first animated appearance. The Superman and Wonder Woman appearances were the highest rated episodes. Every time those shows aired, they were the highest rated episodes. And so someone at ABC decided, well, obviously kids want to see superheroes again. And supposedly, because those two episodes rated so high, they decided that they needed to greenlight the Super Friends. So Hanna-Barbera put together the Super Friends and uh, with Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman and Aquaman together for the first time with their sidekicks, Wendy and Marvin and Wonder Dog. And Robin, of course, was there as well. And uh, the Super Friends did okay ratings-wise, but the only thing was none of the heroes were allowed to throw a punch. Holy Warriors wardrobe! He changed us into Vikings! Very clever, Mixelplick. But there's no way you'll make the Super Friends fight one another. Super Friends, the legendary superpower show. I mean, there were other little shows in between, like Battle of the Planets, which was from Japan. It was syndicated. And because it was syndicated on independent stations and not on a network, there wasn't any editing in terms of, you know, the level of violence. The show could be an action show just like it wanted to be. But for the most part, the superheroes were there, but there just wasn't a whole lot of superheroing (laughs) going on, unfortunately. If you've ever wondered why the Super Friends had craft segments and education segments, this is why. The network needed to feel that there was wholesome value in those superhero shows. Now, take a short lead pencil and push it through the very center of the disc. Okay, give it a spin. Hey, hey, when you spin it on a piece of paper and makes designs. That's a pencil top. <laughs> Fun. Thanks, Wonder Woman. Interestingly enough, Filmation, who produced, you know, The New Adventures of Superman and to me were responsible for The Big Bang and Trends, After they produced Fat Albert, they decided that they were going to make all of their shows pro-social and have a message in them. There was also a thing called the Saturday Superstar Movie, which featured animated versions of popular primetime entertainment. There were animated specials featuring Gidget and Lassie. And then there was one of my all-time favorites, Laugh Olympics. This is it, sports fans, participants even. Television's greatest array of stars, Laugh Olympics, presents the round-the-world triple-team competition between the Yogi Yahoois, the Scooby-Doobies, and the really rockies. The players are on the field, in the stadium even, so let's get on with it. Laugh Olympics. I believe that with the Laugh Olympics, It was based mainly on Battle of the Network Stars, which was a rotating sports competition between CBS, ABC, and NBC. Because if you look at the format for the Laugh Olympics and you watch those old Battle of the Network Stars specials, they're very similar. Now to the next race, Billy Crystal. His opponent, Larry Wilcox of NBC. 
Billy, Hot Shoes Crystal, they're calling him around there because he's supposed to be awfully fast in this thing in warm-ups. Looked like a false start for Larry Wilcox. Oh, look at that! Billy Crystal misjudged the ropes, may have lost a tooth or two there. In a previous episode of Drawn, the 1980s were discussed in terms of how much content was being derived from toys. And there's a reason for that. The laws about advertising to children changed during this time, and the FCC abolished many of the regulations that had limited advertising to children. Again, there was a change in the law in the 1980s that said that toy companies can have shows. So you had your He-Man, you had your G.I. Joe. Mark is quick to point out that even though those series based on toys are often maligned today, they really entertained kids and they kept a lot of industry pros afloat financially. I believe that the G.I. Joes and He-Mans and the Thundercats, in spite of what people say that they were 30-minute commercials, I think that the writers and the producers turned in pretty good stories and kept kids entertained in spite of the image that people thought of those particular TV series. And I'm sure that a lot of people that are working in the industry got a boost in terms of employment because those shows, because they were syndicated and there's lots of episodes, the studios stayed open all year round. Whereas on Saturday morning, once the episodes were produced, the studios probably closed for about six months until the next cycle of new shows came in. Animation historian Jerry Beck told me that he felt that that creatively dark time was actually laying the groundwork for a resurgence of animation as an art form. That was an interesting period. It wasn't a renaissance of animation, but it was building toward one, one that we would have in the 90s. Clearly, The Simpsons was a revolutionary show at that time. And, and then really, literally a year or so after that, the Nicktoons... The original ones with Doug and Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy created all of the original animation you see on TV cartoons, and it brought back this era we're in now, which is I call the creator-driven era, which was an era that disappeared. We had it when cartoons started on TV in the late 50s and early 60s when you had Hanna-Barbera making cartoons that really looked like they drew them, and Jay Ward, Bob Clampett, and other early TV pioneers, that was their artwork. But the TV cartoons uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s morphed into this factory, this whole factory thing where you really can't tell the difference between one show after another or what studio from another. So the Nicktoons was a shocker because it was three cartoons that looked completely different from each other, and each one was assigned to whoever the artist was. And we're in that era now. We're still there. SpongeBob or you know, Gravity Falls or whatever the latest shows are, it's the work of a particular unique creator's vision. When I asked industry insiders about pivotal moments in animation, one person gave me an answer referencing the late 70s that no one else had. I think another really exciting moment that people don't quite realize is that probably the first experimental computer animation they ever saw was in the Death Star scene in Star Wars. That's Linda Semensky. She's currently the vice president of children's programming at PBS, and she was an executive at Cartoon Network in its very early days. And that was uh, Larry Cuba. He was hired by uh, John Whitney to uh, work with him. And then he went on to be an independent uh, computer animator. 
and he was the one hired by um, George Lucas to do that uh, Death Star animation, which, you know, for all the changes that were made to the original Star Wars movie over the years, they've never touched that animation. So I feel like that's uh, another pivotal moment in animation, particularly one that I think a lot of people don't think about. An analysis of the plans provided by Princess Leia has demonstrated a weakness in the battle station. The approach will not be easy. You're required to maneuver straight down this trench and skim the surface to this point. Linda also had two other ready answers for examples of game changers in the late 1980s. Well, who framed Roger Rabbit, of course, beyond the, the, the technological wonder of that film? I think the fact that it revived animation, essentially, it, it brought back animation, it reminded people that they liked animation. It reminded people what was good about 1940s animation. And as far as I'm concerned, all animation that's existed since was because of what Roger Rabbit did for animation. I drink the drink. But I don't want the drink. He doesn't want the drink. He does. I don't. You do. I don't. You don't. I do. Listen, when I say I do, that means I do. And I think The Simpsons was actually very pivotal moment. It was really able to underscore to people that adults could watch animation, that animation could be made for adults, which at that point I think most people didn't believe could happen. I always just figured my wife was my soulmate. But if it's not Marge, then who is it? Where do I begin looking? This really goes beyond my training as a furniture salesman, sir. Now, if you don't want the sofa, I'll have to ask you to leave. Roger Rabbit was 1988, and The Simpsons was 1989. So those moments that Linda's talking about were just a few years before Cartoon Network was founded. I asked Mike Lazo, who's the executive vice president of Adult Swim, about how Cartoon Network got its start. And it's a story that has such a simple but insightful beginning. It was kind of crazy because at that time... Scott Sassel was the entertainment president, and he came to my office on a Friday afternoon, and he said, hey, I've got three animation inventories I want you to look at. Uh, Hanna-Barbera, Terry Toons, and whatever, Casper the Ghost, Harvey Toons, or whatever. So I took those home, and very quickly it was evident, oh, you could make a big network with just the Hanna-Barbera. Terry Toons is too redundant. It's just kind of the same thing over and over again. So I came back on that Monday and I said, look, Hanna-Barbera would form the basis of a, a network right out of the gate. And so that's what he went after. And then the following weekend, I was told, well, what would a schedule look like? And it was cool. I mean, because Hanna-Barbera did all of those early cartoons, Yogi Bear and Huckleberry Hound. And Huckleberry was one of my favorites because he was a southern dog and I could relate. Don't you fretting on now, pussy cat. I'll get you down. Just take it easy now. Old Huck ain't gonna harm you none. Just turn it loose, Kitty. He was also blue, and that was cool to me. And then it had all that action programming, the Space Ghosts and the Birdmans and all that. So you could see a day part coming out of this inventory. And I was actually working at TBS. Another person I worked with, Dick Connell, was at TNT. So it was a cool thing in that Ted brought these people from different parts of the company to kind of collaborate on a cartoon network, which is how you'd make a cartoon if... You were just kind of sitting around jamming with somebody. So Ted, in his genius, 
always kept the bets small initially. And he knew if he used that person from there and that person from there, he could get it done for free initially. And then if it looked like a business, feed it. That's what happened. Historian Eddie Von Mueller pointed to that moment, that acquisition of the Hanna-Barbera Library, as key in the American animation renaissance. Now, what's funny to me, what's ironic to me, Holly, is that it is on a wave of nostalgia for all those crappy cartoons that the American animation renaissance begins. It is out of Ted Turner's purchase of the Hanna-Barbera Library. It's like out out of the, the total degradation of this great medium that the rebirth of this great medium is born. And that's kind of a beautiful thing. And that rebirth happened in part because a network couldn't just keep going on those old cartoons forever. At what point did you guys start things like the Cartoon Cartoon, you know, those little vignette-style development projects? About two, three years into the process, we started getting enough money to do little interstitials. And it was 1996 when we we got Dexter. So, you know, animation takes over a year. So we actually started that process in 94, but it was 96 until we actually had the cartoons coming in. Uh, But as soon as we could, and that's why Space Ghost actually beat a Dexter by a year, because we could do it ourselves for no money. The What a Cartoon Show started airing its world premiere tunes in 1995, and you might recall this from a previous episode, started showing new shorts as a testing ground to see what might make a good series. It's when I, a full-grown adult at the time, started obsessively watching because I loved seeing all of that new stuff. There's no pigeon around here. It's just your imagination. George, there's my imagination. And it was really successful, but even shows that became really popular and part of Cartoon Network's identity were not always a slam dunk. It's a funny show, but it has a very specific sense of humor. And it's not, you know, if if they had been tougher on us, they never would have let us bring it back because it hadn't tested well. Once again, that's Linda Semensky. And in this clip, she was responding to me fawning over one of my favorites, the Powerpuff Girls. Sugar, spice, and everything nice. These were the ingredients chosen to create the perfect little girl. But Professor Utonium accidentally added an extra ingredient to the concoction, Chemical X. Thus, the Powerpuff Girls were born! I had no idea that that show had not tested well because I fell in love with it right away. And I couldn't imagine anyone not feeling the same about it when they saw it. She told me that she felt like the show's creator, Craig McCracken, really had something worth developing, even if early indicators weren't necessarily what the network wanted. He said, well, you know, it didn't test well, so why would you want to do that? And I said, well, you know, Craig's a really funny board artist, and I think he would do a good job. And Lazo, he he knew that it hadn't tested well when it was in pilot form. And then he agreed with me that, you know, if we move forward on Powerpuff Girls, we could keep the team together after Dexter. And so that was enough to convince him that maybe it was a good idea. And then I remember we had to go to the head of Cartoon Network, who kind of had the attitude of, are you crazy? It didn't test well. And he said, we'll make it work, we promise. 
said, okay. And even after we, we showed her the first episode, and she said, you know, it's not really funny. It's more ironic than funny. And we said, oh, it'll be fine. But then they were happy. And then uh, I'd say it was probably within two or three weeks that they started getting calls about licensing Powerpuff Girls. And then everybody thought, okay, well, that worked out pretty well. Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> what will Townsville do at this moment of crisis? But as Mike Lazo mentioned, there was another show, Space Ghost, that they'd already been playing with. Early into the life of the network, Mike told me, they got criticism for only showing those reruns and they wanted to create something new. And after asking network owner Ted Turner for a new animation budget, they were told to just use what they already had. So we went back to our offices and this is the first year of uh, Cartoon Network. And we started messing around with some of the old Hanna-Barbera cartoons and that led to Space Ghost Coast to Coast, which in 1995 became Cartoon Network's first original. Hey, honey, how are you? Do you like sulfur? Sulfur? Sulfur's my favorite food, honey, you know that. Is that why you called me? Yeah. Oh, great. Can I sing in Icelandic? Uh, not now, honey, please. I'm, I'm right in the middle of a, um, giant space war. I, I enjoy talking to you. Yeah, so you have to go now. Okay. Okay, so I'll talk to you when there is peace in space. But we knew this wasn't really a kid cartoon. We were, in essence, making one for ourselves. It aired at midnight when kids should be in bed. Should I sing to you or Altar. sing to You got married. Yeah, okay? Doesn't seem like you love her. Look, marriage is about hiding in the kudzu behind your apartment and not going in until the lights are completely out. So this was this outlier for really... Seven, eight years, it was by itself. And because ad sales at a certain point said, you know, we really can't sell after midnight, but we notice you have this cartoon. Could you make more like it? So in around I don't know, 2000, 2001, we started looking at other opportunities. And then that led to ad sales saying, this is a thing. We can sell this. So we made more Space Goes. We did a Harvey Birdman. My client is a bear betrayed by his buddy, by his government. C-Lab. Do you want the mustache on or off? Off, please. Too bad. We picked up home movies from UPN, which we thought was a great show that was being, in essence, just slept on. Well, I, I guess I'm slightly frustrated about my father remarrying. You know, this, this... That's a load of crap, Brendan. Yeah, well... I mean, come on. That's psychobabble. What? Don't fall prey to it, Brendan. Okay. What does that mean, though? So what were you saying? I was saying, uh, I guess I'm slightly frustrated about my father remarrying. You know, the no, woman... that makes sense. The woman he's marrying, though. And that formed the basis with some anime for the original Adult Swim block, which at that time was just on Sunday nights with a Thursday replay. So Adult Swim was, just by chance, a natural outgrowth of the Hanna-Barbera cartoons that Ted Turner had acquired to start a kids programming network and a bit of creativity on the part of Mike and his team. And the approach stayed that way. Things were always done on a tight budget. I told Mike while we were talking that I always loved the early bumpers that they did for Adult Swim with a bunch of mature ladies in a swimming pool. 
No tea parties. No tea parties. Somebody's going to get hurt. Come on. Grow up. And he told me one person just went to a retirement home one day and shot six hours of footage, and then they could just recut that for nothing, and it became part of the brand's style. Adult swim. All kids out of the pool. It was immediately apparent that there was an audience that was really eager for this unique programming block. Well, right out of the gate, it was tying what, let's say, Comedy Central was doing at that time. So we were amazed that just really the first month, we already were meeting the ratings of what we considered our competitors. But it wasn't until uh, about a year and a half, two years later, when we expanded it. And so again, it was just Sunday night with a Thursday replay. But once we were able to get a show with enough episodes, and that was Futurama. When we picked up Futurama, we were able to expand it to Sunday through Thursday. And at that point, we're now on every night. People can discover us. And just like with home movies, Futurama had been a little slept on at Fox. We don't think it was very well treated. Matt Groening, we used to talk about that. He was delighted that we picked it up. And that's when people found Adult Swim. So from there, Adult Swim expanded both their acquired shows, their new programming, and the number of nights it was on. And the audience continued to grow with it. And those big known shows meant that they could continue to make more experimental shows. Well, thank God for uh, Family Guy, which took so much of the ratings pressure off of us. But the interesting thing is that Family Guy is a great show. So we were able to find things that not only were popular, but that were semi-popular, or in some cases, incredibly unpopular. And all of those things were, in essence, supported by the big hit, the big popularity of Futurama, Family Guy, King of the Hill, uh, because we did not have the budgets to make big scripted half hours. Those shows were about a million and a half dollars per episode, whereas our shows, Space Ghost, for example, was $35,000 for 15 minutes, so 70000 for a half hour. So you can tell we were in a different pool. Bring me my monocle. I want to look rich. But I still was really curious. What drove all of that growth? Why were adults so ready for their own cartoons? I do think it was very much timing. You know, you have to remember there wasn't a culture in America of adults watching animation really until the kids that grew up with Saturday morning cartoons uh, started doing it themselves. To me, it wasn't weird to watch Daffy Duck when I was 17 years old, but that would have been very weird for my father. But yet my father watched Daffy Duck when Daffy was in a theater. So he was very familiar with cartoons. It was just a kid thing. But to myself and to many others like me, it wasn't odd at all to continue to watch animation when we were much older because those were some of our fondest memories and some of the shows we loved the most. So I actually think we benefited from the generations being acclimated to it. And I also think we benefited from our environment. 
were on a Cartoon Network. So you have a fan of animation and their parents sitting there. And so all across the day, you're programming it like an actual network. You have very youngish cartoons early. They go into slightly older cartoons in the afternoon, that more action-type cartoon. Then you get into primetime, and it's more of a written sitcom-type show. So why not have late night? You know, something a little crazier. Amazing air! I have the energy of a bear that has the energy of two bears. How are you hanging up there? I dig my toes into the ceiling. Into NASA-grade titanium? Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be that strong. That's nothing compared to my telekawatsis powers. Behold, I'm psychoflexing. Bend. Rubber spoon, rubber spoon, rubber spoon, rubber spoon. I asked people I interviewed why they think we're currently in a phase where there is animation being made for virtually every possible audience that might want to consume it. Here's what Michael Olin, chief marketing officer for Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, and Boomerang, had to say about it. So I think it is the golden age of animation. Certainly there was one before this, but this is one. We're in peak animation right now. I think the following factors contribute to that. One is the fact that Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network have been around for 25 years plus. And so a generation of kid has been raised knowing that there are animated shows, that they're valid and good, then sort of discerning from that, wait, this is probably a job, right? So... Back 25 years ago, there was a certain kind of person that worked at Cartoon Network looking like me, basically, um, which was not the most diverse kind of look. Now, we have so many young women working in animation, so many people from all different backgrounds. It's a polygon of people who've grown up watching animation that are now interested and are filling the schools, learning about animation, coming to work. Second reason is, obviously, all these services. So there's channels. There's, we're still at the time when there's still is network television, cable television, and these streaming services. You know, I don't know how much longer that will be, but right now you've got every option possible in terms of content providers. And they have to fill the pipes. So there's so many jobs for animators right now, which only makes people raise their game, raise their game, raise their game, and do interesting stuff. One of the things about this golden age in animation is that we can also trace it back, at least in part, to the family experience. As people my age have grown up and had their own kids but never lost their attachment to cartoons, they're sharing that love with the next generation and growing the audience so new creators have people who love and understand the medium. George Doherty, the creator of Bugs Bunny at the Symphony, noticed this happening in his audiences. Within 24 hours of it being announced, it was sold out in a 3,000-seat concert hall. That's number one. Number two, when we actually did the concert and looked out into the audience, it was all adults. There was hardly a, a kid there. Now we're very, we're one of the very kid-friendly concerts, and we get very mixed demographics now because our original audiences from 1990 are now bringing their kids and, in some cases, their grandkids. But in the beginning, it was like an, a, a totally adult audience. So that was another revelation. So while adults have continued to embrace their beloved favorites as well as new material, they're not leaving kids behind. They're bringing them along to create a new sort of community of viewers. 
I will confess that my dad and I are very different people and we don't always understand each other. But if we start talking about the Jungle Book or Foghorn Leghorn, the differences between us seem to shrink a little because we both love those cartoons. Jerry Beck remembers very clearly when he noticed that animation was being picked up as more mainstream and less of a niche interest for adults. And I still remember uh, a friend of mine, female grown-up friend of mine, who told me, oh, no, no, she was going to go see Little Mermaid for the second time with her gal pals. And I'm like, really? And that's when I knew, and this was early, when, it, like the week or two when it opened, that's when I knew, uh-oh, there's a change going on here, and it's good. And as soon as animation started to make that kind of money and get repeat box office, Hollywood began to take it a little more seriously. Um, it became less of a novelty and more of a, you know, sort out as a novelty. Even The Simpsons being on in primetime was a novelty because by then animation in primetime had devolved to Charlie Brown specials. Nothing wrong with that. But that's what animation in primetime was before The Simpsons. It was, you know, Christmas specials. I think it's also worth pointing out that this entire transition from grown-up entertainment to kids' shows to the modern era of animation for all ages hasn't been a simple straight line. There have always been outliers. For example, before the superhero boom of the 1960s, the Fleischer Studios made a Superman series in the 1940s. Johnny Quest was also exploring the adventure genre decades before other shows followed suit. And the Beatles' full-length feature Yellow Submarine opened in 1968, and that was definitely an outlier in the animated space. We meanies only take no for an answer. Is that understood, Max? No, your blueness. That's better. Also in the 1970s came the rise of animation that was very adult in its sensibilities. Jerry Beck explained how this particular part of the industry was born when a lot of talented people found themselves jobless. It's a shocker, folks. Get ready for a shocker. No, it would be, it would be Ralph Bakshi's Fritz the Cat, which came out in 1972, and that was an X-rated cartoon. Ralph had been a product of the Terry Toon studio in New York. They did Mighty Mouse and Deputy Dog and characters like that. And he had access. He had risen to the ranks of director by the late 60s, but he was still a young guy. And like Hanna-Barbera did on the West Coast, Ralph had access on the East Coast to all of these great animators who were now out of work who used to work on the old Popeye cartoons or, you know, Casper cartoons and things like that. And they were all out of work. And he, he rallied them together and he got the rights to this property and made a contemporary adult cartoon, which shockingly was not a big piece of exploitation. It actually had a message to it and got good reviews, even though it was X-rated and really dirty. In fact, it's so politically incorrect. There are things in there nobody would put in a cartoon today, really. But it was the 70s. No more the dreary, boring classes, the dismal lectures, the sitting around bullshit with pretentious facts. Hippies. No more the books, the spoutings of a bunch of old farts who think they know the whole score. <laughs> it's been a long road to get to the point that we're at now, where you can find animation on TV at any hour of the day or night, and where new and interesting shows and movies are being made that appeal to a wide swath of viewers. But then that made me wonder, what happens next? Here's Michael Oline. 
I think, to be real, I think that there'll be a compression. I think that there'll be a little bit of shrinkage just because it's maybe a bubble of animation. And there's only so many people who know enough about animation to pull off making a show. So I think there'll be a little bit of compression. And then I think that whatever AR or VR is meant to be, some intersection of animation and it will create something new. I don't think it's what we're looking at now, but something like that. I think 2D will persist. I think 2D will continue to be. Um, and I think CG, obviously, in movies will continue to be. I think everyone uh, working on a show is hoping that that's the case and presuming that that's the case. And it, sometimes that can rear its ugly head where people get kind of vapor locked on decisions within the show or moments and overwork it because they think it's going to be like Bugs Bunny. It's going to be on in 50 years. Everyone feels like animation is going to be permanent. They do. What's well, unique in a way that other mediums are not. It transcends time better than other mediums. It doesn't age as quickly. When I was talking with Mike Lazo, it was so obvious that he really thinks about the big picture. So I wanted to know what he sees next for adult animation. What is your vision for the future of Adult Swim? Well, it's obviously digital and streaming. And what that all means, I don't really think anybody knows except Netflix. And I know Netflix knows that they just better have a ton of original programming. So thankfully... That's one of the great things about Adult Swim. We own all our programming to the large uh, degree. And so that will be value whatever the platform is. But if I could just wave a wand, I would put everything on some form of digital delivery and I would do it globally because I think that the stuff we make works internationally almost as well as it does domestically. And I think we're sleeping on that a little bit. Uh, that if we could offer youth programming very, very inexpensively to the world, that's a bigger business than the one we're in now. So, look, I'm an old man. I'm not going to see how that all plays out. But I'm certain that's where it's going to go. And I hope it gets there sooner rather than later. Okay, real talk. If there were a way to have cartoons beamed right into my brain, I would probably take it. <laughs> I really love them. I think that'd be a great delivery system. And now that we've looked at the past and present of animation in the U.S. and theorized a little bit about its future, we're going to keep talking about the future, but in a slightly different way. Our next episode, we'll look at how animation has envisioned the future and how futurism has shaped the industry. One of the things that comic art does is leaves out information, which makes it almost like a sort of abstract thing. So I view imaginative fiction, and I would put under that science fiction, fantasy, and allegory maybe, as genres which leave out information and create a sort of abstract depiction of human life in order to get to sort of more fundamental truth. Special thanks to all of my guests who appeared on today's show. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. I had such a delightful time getting to speak with all of these people from the industry. If you would like to visit us online, you can do so at drawnpodcast.com. 
You can also email us at drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And we are also visible across the social media spectrum as Drawn Podcasts. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do so. We're at Apple Podcasts just waiting for you. So we hope to meet up with you again on the next Drawn. Drawn. 